0: to face later in this service we'll come to the lord's table where indeed we do see the lord face to face and handle with our very hands the bread and the cup wherein through faith we find christ jesus and now we come face to face with the lord through his word so if you are able please rise out of respect for god's word as i read to you our sermon text mark 11 verses 12 To 25, this is the inspired word of God. On the following day, when they came from Bethany, he was hungry. And seeing in the distance a fig tree and leaf, he went to see if he could find anything on it. When he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. And He said to it, may no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard it. And the scribes heard it and were seeking a way to destroy him. For they feared him, because all the crowd was astonished at his teaching. And when evening came, they went out of the city. As they passed by in the morning, they saw the fig tree withered away to its roots. And Peter remembered and said to him, Rabbi, look, the fig tree that you cursed has withered. And Jesus answered them, Have faith in God. Truly I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, be taken up and thrown to the sea, and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says will come to pass, it will be done for him. Therefore I tell you, whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you have received it and it will be yours. And Whenever you stand praying, forgive if you have anything against anyone so that your Father who is in heaven may forgive you your trespasses. Thus ends the reading of God's holy and inspired word, our only infallible rule for faith and practice. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. You may be seated. (coughs) Will you pray with me? Lord God, thank you for your word. Thank you for its truth. Thank you for the gospel. Thank you especially for Christ Jesus, in whose name we pray. Well, there are two things that we've seen a lot in Mark. Well, I suppose maybe more than two things, but two things in particular. One of them is miracles, right? We've seen a lot of miracles in Mark. Jesus is constantly doing things, and Mark wants to highlight them these miracles uh, wherein he is expressing and showing his power over all of creation. The second thing we've seen a lot of in Mark is sandwiches. Now, when I say sandwiches, I'm not just talking about the actual things we eat. I'm talking about the idea that we've talked about a number of times where where Mark likes to structure things with a sandwich structure. Where he talks about something in one place and later on talks about it again. But in between we see kind of a filling in, right? So kind of like the two slices of bread with the meat in between. And the meat in the middle kind of explains what is going on with the beginning part and the ending part. And we see that exact same structure here today the miracle though is unlike most of the miracles that jesus performs right because most of his miracles are are bringing life out of death bringing order out of chaos but here he's actually bringing death out of life it's a strange anti-miracle as one person put it and all of this is about the fact that god's people are supposed to be fruitful they're supposed to exhibit the fruit of faith. And in this anti-miracle and the the rest of the text that, that explains it, we see the implications both of, of exhibiting this fruit and of not exhibiting this fruit. And so if you've got you know your bulletin open to your sermon notes page, you'll see that they're There's an outline here that that kind of breaks it up into those two things, the problems of fruitlessness amongst God's people, and then secondly, the blessings of fruitfulness amongst God's people. Before we get to that, though, before we get into that outlined part that you find in your bulletin, we need to gain a little bit of background for this passage and make sure we're up to speed on, on the understanding of what's going on here. You'll remember last week we were... Uh, at the triumphal entry. Jesus had come into Jerusalem and, and you recall at the end of the day he had gone into the temple, looked around, seeing that the day was done. He turned and left and they went back to Bethany. And so today we begin on the following day when they came from Bethany and we see that they come and Jesus was hungry. He woke up early that morning likely he made the walk from bethany and he was hungry it's it's really a a wonderful touch that mark adds here i think to demonstrate to us the reality of christ's humanity he was a real human being he he got hungry just like you and i do jesus was truly human and and so here he is in his hunger, and he sees in the distance this fig tree, which is in leaf. And so he goes up to see if it has anything on it. And when he came to it, he found that it had nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. Remember, this is around Passover time, so it's early spring, right? And, and that wasn't the season for figs to be coming out. They're, they're not usually ripe until the end of summer or perhaps even into fall, Uh, That's when they usually find the the ripened figs on the fig tree. What what does normally happen in the springtime, though, is is the buds that are left over from the previous year actually do produce a small fruit. They call them an early fig because they're figs and they come early. They're smaller, not anywhere near as tasty, not anywhere near as large, but they are edible. They do provide nutrition. They can satisfy hunger. And so it's likely this is what Jesus expected to find on the tree because they normally appeared at the same time that leaves started to appear on the trees. But when he got there, he found there was nothing but leaves, nothing but this appearance of having the early figs, but not actually having them. And so he says, May may no one ever eat your fruit again. It, it kind of surprises us, doesn't it, when we read this if we've not read it before, that Jesus, who's who's normally so so kind and so so gracious and so pleasant, that he would say this to this tree. I mean, uh, it it seems odd, and it should kind of set off some buzzers in our head. We should say, I think Jesus might be up to something here. This this is more than just him. Getting upset at a tree because he's he's hungry. And Mark specifically points out to us here, and his disciples heard it. It's interesting because then on the other side of the sandwich, right, if we skip down to verse 20, we see as they pass by the next morning, the fig tree had withered away to its roots. Right? This is not normal, right, for a tree to be in full full leaf one day, and the next day to be completely withered away, all the way down to its roots. And we read that Peter remembered and said to him, Rabbi, look, the fig tree that you cursed has withered. It's interesting, what does Peter do? Peter first heard what he had said, and then he saw the world around him, and he remembered what had been said, and his understanding of the world around him was 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 informed and directed by what the Lord had said. The word of God informed and directed how Peter understood the world around him. And this stands in direct contrast to what we see from the the religious leaders of the day. Because after Jesus has cleansed the temple, and we'll come back to that in just a moment, uh, we, we see that in verse 18, the chief priests and the scribes heard it. They heard what he had been teaching. And we're seeking a way to destroy him. For they feared him. Because all the crowd was astonished at his teaching. People were astonished at his teaching. It's the same wording that we read back in Mark 1, if you remember, a long time ago when we were way back then. When Jesus began his ministry, he got up to teach. And we read that the crowd was astonished because he taught with authority. Not like The scribes, his authority was clearly bigger, greater than their authority. And the people realized that his authority was greater than their authority. And the scribes and the chief priests, the religious leaders, did not like (laughs) that his authority was greater than their authority. In fact, they were threatened by it. We're often looking for a tame jesus aren't we 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 want a jesus that we can trust a jesus that doesn't threaten us but the reality is that the teachings of jesus the word of god will threaten us it will threaten your self-centered way of living it will it will threaten your habits and your cultural tendencies it will threaten your preconceived notions when we listen to what Jesus has to say, we will find, if we are truly listening, that he will turn upside down all of these things. He will overturn them. And if Jesus isn't upending these things in your life, then it's quite possible that you're not truly listening to him. And So we come to the cleansing of the temple. We see in it an enacted parable of sorts. Jesus is is teaching something with what he's doing just like with the fig tree for according to Mark's structure right that sandwich structure of fig tree temple fig tree we understand that that what was going on with the fig tree is the same thing that's going on with the temple the fig tree and the vine were were pretty much universally understood as being symbols of the nation as was the temple A symbol of the nation. And Jesus had had cursed the fig tree that had, you'll recall, an outward appearance of fruitfulness. But upon closer inspection, there was no fruitfulness at all. This tells us something about what he thought of the temple, doesn't it? Jesus was making the point that the, the temple specifically and and more specifically, the the nation and the religious leaders had a, an appearance of fruitfulness. They were carrying on as if they they were spiritually bearing fruit, when in actuality there was no fruitfulness at all. The very thing that Jesus was reacting to when he cleansed the temple was this. And so he comes in, and we see that that he began to drive out those who sold and those who bought. He he began to overturn the tables of the money changers and the the seats of those who sold pigeons and he would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple now we need to know that the practices that we're talking about here this changing of money this selling of pigeons for instance uh, were, were not necessarily bad things in and of themselves right in fact they were very necessary things remember it's passover pilgrims are coming from far away and they do two things at passover one is they pay their temple tax And when they pay their temple tax, they can't pay, especially if they're coming from some far off land with foreign monies. They can't pay with those foreign monies. Why? Because those foreign monies have the image of foreign gods on them. And they cannot pay this tribute with this money that has the image of a foreign god on it. And so they need to change the money. They need to have the right currency. The currency that is honoring to God. And so there needs to be Money changers who are doing this now. Now, in this case, it could be the fact that there were those money changers there under the guise of the temple that were maybe skimming a little bit extra off the top, and the temple was making a little bit extra money, and they were taking advantage of this need. And so, so that is more of a problem of what's going on here with the buying of animals. It's the same way, because the other thing that happened is they were coming there to offer a sacrifice, right and and it can be hard to carry animals with you especially if you're not sure if the animal is going to meet up with the the standards of purity that are needed for this sacrifice right it it had to be a perfectly unblemished animal and especially if you were poor and not able to provide a lamb there was a provision in the law made where you could you could instead offer pigeons but they had to be still the same thing and and that they were spotless. They were perfect. And so you could get those there at the temple. The problem wasn't the business that was being conducted so much as it had become more important than the worship. It had become an obstacle to the worship, in fact. And so that brings us to where we were in our outline. First, the problems of fruitlessness. Fruitlessness amongst god's people it's possible after all to look to all the world as if you are incredibly close to god when in reality your heart is so very far from him right when 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 you're not just failing to produce spiritual fruit but you're failing to produce spiritual fruit while pretending to do so right? and this is the essence of hypocrisy right a word which which finds its root in the greek that. A word that, that actually means play-acting, right? Uh, you, you're putting on a mask. You're pretending to be something that you're not. And When we are sunk into hypocrisy in this way, pretending to be serving the Lord, pretending to be fruitful in our faith, we abuse the Lord's name see, when we we claim to be acting on God's behalf, but we're really just only pursuing our only desires, it's the very essence of taking the name of the Lord in vain, right? One of the Ten Commandments that we usually equate with, like, using the word Lord or Jesus or God in a way that's like an exclamation or perhaps in a way that's an expletive, right? That's what we usually think about. But I think that this is actually more to the core of what's being talked about when we talk about taking the name of the Lord in vain. Right? If we who are called by the name of Christ Jesus live in a way that is not befitting of one who is called in the name of Christ Jesus, we are taking the name of the Lord in vain this is why church scandals with pastors, for instance, are, are so heinous, right? Why it's so much worse for a, a pastor to get caught in some scandal, whether it's financial or sexual or, or ethical or whatever it is, than if just like the, the head of some business got caught in it, right? Because he's claiming to speak on behalf of God. He's claiming to represent Christ Jesus. And yet, in such sin that's where the chief priests and scribes were they claimed to represent god but they were seeking to actually destroy the very god they claimed to represent they claimed to be concerned about the holiness of god but their practices were more focused on aggrandizing themselves a the second problem with the fruitlessness of that exists among God's people sometimes is it incites the Lord's anger. We tend to think of a gentle Jesus, don't we? Gentle Jesus, meek, and mild. And there's a reason for that, right? We we've a number of times over the last few weeks talked about Jesus as our good shepherd and how he tenderly cares for us, tenderly cares for us and and how he says that we we should, you know, take his yoke upon us and and learn from him, for he is gentle and lowly in heart. But we we must not lose sight of the fact that his anger burns hot against sin. Sometimes we want to do this. Sometimes we want to forget that God is angry at sin. About 10 years ago, another denomination was putting together a hymnal. And, and one of the hymns that they were going to include in that hymnal is the modern hymn that we sometimes sing in Christ Alone, Uh, but then they kind of ran into a problem because they wanted to change one of the lines in the hymn. Uh, You you might recall there's the line in that hymn that says, till on the cross as Jesus died, the wrath of God was satisfied. And and they just wanted to tweak that just a little bit. They wanted to change it to this, till on the cross as Jesus died, the love of God was magnified. And indeed, that's true. The love of God is magnified at the cross where the payment for our sins shines before us in all of his glory. The love of God is absolutely magnified. there, like nowhere else. And yet, it very much changes the very message of what's going on there, doesn't it? it they, they wanted to get away from this idea of a God that was angry at our sin. A God that, that had wrath that needed to be poured out. They were uncomfortable with the idea of such a God. And I think part of the reason that we too sometimes become uncomfortable with the idea of an angry God is because we've seen so many people in this world, and maybe even done it ourselves, lash out in their anger, lose their temper, act in ways that are are, are just unfitting and inappropriate. But God's wrath is not a temper tantrum. It is not him losing his his cool. The wrath of God is expressed. It's his his utter abhorrence towards sin expressed in, in a settled opposition to it. And his total and complete commitment to do something to eradicate it. And now, we can sometimes go the other way with it right we we can sometimes go the other way with it we can say well well since god gets angry like that you know since since jesus has a righteous anger he displays as he's turning over the tables in the temple then it's probably all right for me to get angry too. In fact, if I want to be like Jesus, I should get angry. And there's some people who who live their life like that. We, we all, I think, know Christians like that, don't we? Who, who live their lives just mad, just angry. And that's taking it the other direction too far, right? Because, because even though it is possible to have a, a so-called righteous anger, the problem is that that, that while Jesus does express a righteous anger, he is perfect and holy in all his ways. And when when I am righteously angry over something, over which perhaps it is right for me to be angry, even that righteous anger is tinged by my sin. Right? Because my sin is so much a part of me that I just can't get away from it. And so so that sin makes my righteous anger unrighteous. And that's why Paul says in Ephesians 4, Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. And why he tells Timothy in 1 Timothy 2, I desire then that in every place men should pray, lifting holy hands without anger or quarreling why James tells us, though this, my beloved brothers, let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. For the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. So even though we live in a culture of anger, we must not be prone to anger, even as Jesus displays a righteous anger. And even as we realize that the rootlessness of God's people incites God's anger, and we see it also prompts God's judgment. Right? Because the Lord's anger is pure and holy, and not intermingled with sin like ours is, his his act of judgment is altogether pure and holy as well. Right? It, It is completely right in all its ways. It's what we deserve. Romans tells us the wages of sin is death. What is a wage but something you've earned, right? Uh, United Auto Workers, right, are on strike right now uh, because they, you know, among other things, they think they they have earned a better wage, right? And so so it is that, that we have earned God's judgment because of our sin. We have earned no less than death. That's what God told Adam in the garden, right? The day you eat of it, you will surely die and so our sin both our sin in adam as we participated in his sin and the sin that we live out every day on our own has deserved the judgment of god and death itself at its core that's what this enacted parable is all about it's about the judgment that we all deserve it's not just jesus flying off the handle it's a, it's a judgment that is to come. It's it's a prophecy, an acted out prophecy of of the temple's impending destruction and the resulting sacrifices, uh, cessation of its sacrifices that will come as as a part of God's judgment. Right? Because sin always gets in the way of worship. That's what's happened here. That's what's happened here. We talked before about the the maybe immoral or unethical. Things that were going on in the in in the selling and the money changing but there was another problem that was going on as well where those took place was in what's known as the court of the gentiles right the temple was broken up into different courts and and certain people could only go into certain sections if you were not a jew you could not go into the inner sections. you could only go in this outer court which was called the court of the gentiles right and so if you weren't a jew but you wanted to come to worship god this was the only place you could worship him. But what Jesus found when he came in, likely what he even saw the night before when he had come and looked in the temple, was that that whole area was was filled with tables and and booths and people selling things, right? People people who had taken up all this space. and, And you can imagine the The commotion and the noise and all these things going on in this area that would interrupt the worship of the people that had come there. So they were not able to pray to the Lord and to worship the Lord. And that's why Jesus says to them in verse 17, Is it not written, my house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations? Now Matthew and Luke shorten it. They actually, in their passage where they talk about this, they just say that Jesus says, not a house of prayer, right? But but Mark gives the fuller quote, right? A house of prayer for all the nations. Right? Because it wasn't just for the Jewish people. That's the purpose of God from the very beginning was, was that He would call Abraham. And that the the family of Abraham would not just be blessed by him, but they would be blessed so that they might be a blessing to all peoples, that all the families of the earth might be blessed through him. That is the designs that God had. And so, so we see this quotation that Jesus It's taken from Isaiah 56 verse 7. It's in the midst of a passage which proclaims this age-old idea that that salvation would come not only to the Jews but to the nations as well. And Jesus follows it up with another quotation of scripture. He says, but you have made it a den of robbers. He's quoting here from Jeremiah 7 verse 11. And that's found in a passage where, where he's talking about the first temple, you'll recall the temple that's here now is a second temple that has been built. There was a first temple that existed before that that, that had also been des- destroyed through invasion. And, and what we see in Jeremiah 7 is this, this, this prospect or this, this word from God through the prophet. Saying, "Do not trust in these deceptive words." The temple—this is the temple of the Lord. The temple of the Lord. The temple of the Lord. Right? Because see, the people thought, "Well, we've got the temple, right? And the temple's here, and and so we're good. And it doesn't really matter what we do. We can go live rotten lives, and we we can oppress foreigners, and we can we can steal from people. We can we can do terrible things, and all we have to do is come to the temple and offer a sacrifice, and all's good." And God says, "No." Don't don't think that that I'm just your your genie in a bottle to take care of things like that for you. Will you steal, murder, commit adultery, swear falsely, make offerings to Baal, and go after other gods that you have not known, and then come and stand before me in this house, which is called by my name, and say, we are delivered. That's what he says. Has this house, which has been called by my name, Become a den of robbers in your eyes. Right? And so, so he says, Therefore I will do to the house that is called by my name and in which you trust, and to the place I gave you and to your fathers as I did Shiloh, I will cast you out of my sight as, as I cast out all of your kinsmen, all the offering of Ephraim. He says, I, I will cast you out. You will be gone from the temple, and the temple will, will be a place of judgment. And indeed, we see that in the providence of God, Babylon did come and raise the temple and carry the people off in exile. And Jesus is saying in the providence of God, once more as a response to the people's sin, the second temple will be raised just as the first. And indeed, this very thing occurred in the year 70 AD. The judgment of God was coming because of their fruitlessness. So let's look at the other side of the coin now, the blessings of fruitfulness amongst God's people. We'll have to go a little bit quicker here, so buckle your seatbelts. Verse 22, Jesus answered them, have faith in God. That's the first thing that the blessings of fruitfulness do. One of the blessings of fruitfulness is it expresses faith. It, it, it reminds us of John 14, where Jesus says, Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. Right? That's what faith is. It's belief. It's, it's trusting in God. For by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not as a result of works. Right? And, and we're not just talking about an easy believism, or as Dietrich Bonhoeffer called it, a cheap grace. Right? It's not just mouthing some words. It's not just praying a prayer once and moving on. It, it's, it's a true faith, a living faith that we're talking about. Trusting in Christ Jesus alone and in nothing else. It's a faith that pushes us to action. Right, James tells us, for as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. True and living faith will prompt us to work. It will... It will be a faithfulness that expresses itself in fruits. So, fruitfulness expresses faith. When God's people live a a faith expressing fruitful life, it's not just a matter of giving intellectual assent to truths, right? It's actually living life as God directs us the the second blessing of fruitfulness among god's people is it it occasions miracles he says here uh truly i say to whoever says to this mountain be taken up and thrown into the sea and does not doubt but believes that he what he says will come to pass it will be done for him what is the mountain that he's referring to here that's the question really he doesn't say whoever believes mountains you know can be thrown into the sea will but he says this mountain here the mountain that's before him at this point, as he's teaching this, is the Temple Mount, right? It's the Temple Mount. And Jesus is saying to his disciples that the Temple Mount, with with its traditions and its sacrificial system, with its signs that merely pointed forward to a reality, a reality that had now come to be in the person of Jesus Christ, this Temple Mount, would be thrown into the sea if only they believed. If they would but trust in Christ Jesus, then they would no longer need the signs and the shadows because they had the reality. They could trust in him, they could see him, they could touch him with their own hands, and they could, they could know salvation in him. And he says that whatever you ask in prayer, believe what you received, and it will be yours. It's not just a blank check he's giving them there. It sounds like it at first glance, but if we think about it for a second, we know that that's not the case. Because what did Jesus do when he prayed in Gethsemane, right? He prayed, Lord, if, if, if possible, let this cup pass from me, but it did not. And so Jesus can't promise us that that we can ask for anything at any time, and we just get it, and that's fine, right? Because, because it didn't even bear out in his life. But, but that's because how did he pray? How did he pray? He prayed, Lord, let this pass. But not as I will, but yours be done. Right? So, one commentator says this is a reminder that prayer is not simply asking God for the pleasant things that we might desire, but an earnest yearning for and enter into the will of God for ourselves and others, whether it is sweet or bitter. Right? So, the prayers we pray need to be lawful prayers. That's what it means to pray in the name of Jesus, right? We're speaking his desires to God. And he still works mightily and miraculously through the prayers of his saints. And nowhere does he work more mightily and miraculously than in our salvation. That's the other blessing of fruitfulness that we have here. It evidences forgiveness. Right? We'll see forgiveness in our own lives as we truly have faith. Whenever you stand praying, forgive if you have anything against anyone so that your Father who is in heaven may forgive your trespasses. It's what we pray every week in the Lord's Prayer, right? Forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. It's not that God pays us back, right? That we earn a bonus by forgiving somebody, no. it's that If we have come to see how forgiven we are, As the blood of Christ Jesus has washed us clean of our sin, sin that had sentenced us to death, as we have been removed from death row, as he has been executed on our behalf, as we begin to see how incredibly forgiven we are, we can't help but forgive others. How can we possibly withhold forgiveness from others? And we remember this as we come to the table today. As we come to the table considering the Lord's sacrifice for us and his forgiveness of us. It should prompt us to forgive those who have wronged us. I knew another pastor who told me once that that at his church they partook of communion every week. And, And he said it had a profound impact on his church. I said, really, what was that? And he said, well... The unity of our church, once we went to communion every week, skyrocketed. I said, really? Why why is that? He said, because every time we come to the Lord's table, we have to wrestle with the unforgiveness and the bitterness and the disunity that rests in our heart. And we have to wrestle with the idea, will I hold on to this bitterness? Will I hold on to this anger? Will I hold on to this unforgiveness when Christ Jesus has so graciously forgiven me? And so as they came back to the table week after week after week, they found themselves needing to forgive one another week after week after week. And that their unity was strengthened by them. That's the whole point of the table is that our unity might be strengthened. It's not just that we experience communion with Jesus, which we very truly do, but we experience communion with one another. It's the reality that Jesus desires. It's the fruit that he wants us to issue forth. Just as the fig tree was out of season, And could not satisfy the Lord's hunger. So too the temple was out of season. And could not satisfy those who hungered and thirsted for righteousness. But The Lord Jesus has given himself for us. That we might be satisfied. And we partake of him here by faith in this meal. It is essential though that we come with a true and living faith. Otherwise, we do not partake of him at all. So let us join together now in proclaiming that faith in the words of the Nicene Creed. You'll find it printed in your bulletin, this ancient statement of faith the Christians have shared throughout the centuries. My brothers and sisters in Christ, what do you believe?